The Joy FM Sports presents The Sweet Spot with Corey Bradley. Welcome to The Sweet Spot. I'm your host, Corey Bradley. Thank you for joining us again this week. You know, last week's show was all about the Iron Bowl predictions and everything that was leading up to the game. So, of course, we have to recap that game for this week's show. Auburn won 48-45. It was a thrilling game, one of a, uh, the classic Iron Bowl matchups that we've seen in, in recent history. And kind of, I don't know, in a way unorthodox. We not usually see that Auburn-Alabama – a uh, high-scoring game, a shootout the way that it was. I know Matthew Johnson texted me that night after the game, and he was he was like, you know, I didn't expect to see two Big 12 games today as he's an Oklahoma fan, and here we've we seen what happened with Auburn and Alabama and the Iron Bowl and how, uh, how scoring, high-scoring that it was in that 230 matchup. Now, there were only two people who predicted Auburn would win in last week's show, and, and those two people were Mary Willis and Matt Johnson. They both picked Auburn to win that game. The rest of us picked Alabama, including uh, some of us Auburn fans. We just didn't have uh, confidence that we could – really, I think it came down to the offensively because we knew what Auburn has defensively and how great they've been. I really believe it became it, – it, it was it's, it was really about the offense, the questions that surrounded the offense. Could they score? Because we all knew that – Auburn's defense is great, but Alabama's offense is great. With Tua or without Tua, they still have those four amazing receivers that they have. So with me leading up to the game, like a part of me felt Auburn would win, but I just couldn't see how. I know Chuck Locke mentioned you have to choose, you know, you have your heart and mind. It's heart versus mind. So in my heart, I'm with Auburn, but in my mind, I just couldn't wrap around how Auburn would get it done because against Georgia, against Florida, against LSU, they told they combined for a total of 47 points in those three games. And then against Alabama, they are up for 48. Now, I was like, okay, can Auburn's offense keep up with Alabama's offense? Can they do it? And even though Auburn won and scored 48, I still don't think the offense kept up with Alabama's offense um, as a whole, I think it really came down to those two pick six returns that made the difference. That's 14 points that you got from the defense, something that Kenneth Reeves, who was on our show last week, he picked Bama as well, but I asked him if he thought Auburn would win, what would they have to do to get it done? And that's what he said, that they needed scores from the defensive side of the ball. Because anytime you get points from the defensive side of the ball, it's kind of like bonus points because you expect the offense to get in the end zone, but anytime you can get a special teams touchdown or a defensive touchdown, like I said, it's kind of extra bonus points that you didn't uh, kind of account for. So that really made the difference to me in that game for Auburn. And, you know, defensively, they got two touchdowns. Mary Willis spoke that Unders Carlson had to get back on track because he struggled all year. She said he had to get – field goals in the game and had to uh, be successful on a few long distance kicks as well and she was dead on on that because Anders Carlson was four for four in that game every opportunity he had to give the Tigers points he did just that now a lot of people are saying the game was decided by field goals whether it was that extra second Auburn got back for the half when Carlson nailed that 52 yarder or if it was the field goal late in the game that Joseph Bulovas missed uh, as he hit the upright 
Now, everybody's talked about those field goals. That's what really determined the outcome of the game. But to me, it was more about the PATs. And Bama fans may say, what are you talking about? PATs. Like We made all of our PATs. We scored 45 points. Both of us was 6-for-6 six six in his points after touchdowns. Now, those are the good PATs. But what hurt Bama in this game was the bad PATs, penalties and turnovers. This game, Bama had 13 penalties for 96 yards. We we just don't see a saving coach team uh, be as undisciplined in the, the careless and mental mistakes that they made, not just in the game but throughout the year because Alabama is ranked 118th in penalty yardage. There's a total of, of 130 teams in college football in the FBS. So they're ranked 118 out of 130. And so regardless of your talent, who do you have on the field, five-star recruits, doesn't matter, Heisman Trophy candidate, finalist, the best receiving core in the nation, when you are undisciplined as you are, it's going to be tough to beat the good teams because, you know, Alabama had more penalties in every game than their opponent except for two games, and that was against Southern Miss and Tennessee. So the other, uh, I guess that's what, 10 games, the other 10 games, they had more penalties than their opponent, which included against Auburn, who they lost against, and LSU, who they lost uh, against as well. So it really came down to me was more about the PATs, the bad ones I mentioned, penalties and turnovers. 13 penalties, 96 yards, and then the two turnovers, which were both pick six returns, one by Zacoby McLean and the other by Smoke Monday. And so that, to me, Whenever you give uh, a good team kind of bonus points, as I mentioned, it's hard to bounce back from that because those, you're, like I said, you're not expecting points from the defense. You're not expecting uh, two pick six returns. I mean, we see pick six uh, returns in games quite often, but to have two in one game, that's that's a backbreaker, especially playing on the road in Jordan here and as hostile as a crowd as it was. I've People told me uh, that I know that, that went to the game, they were talking about how loud it was and just they haven't heard it that loud in several years. Uh, so that's just impressive, you know, with what Auburn and that, that student section. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's an amazing feeling when you're at a game of that magnitude. Like I said, I've been to my one Iron Bowl in 2009, and it was, it's like I said, it was just a packed house. The atmosphere was electric. And it was super loud because there's nothing but people everywhere. There's no standing room. There's no. It's barely shoulder room. You know, you're shoulder to shoulder with everyone. So you knew that was going to be a struggle for Alabama going into the game uh, before anything that happened on the field. So the PATs, I believe, was the missing uh, difference for Alabama. Like I said, we know what happened with field goals, but the penalties and turnovers were too much to overcome against the Auburn Tiger team. Now, I'm going to give you my top three Auburn moments, and I'm going to give them in order, uh, just kind of the importance and the, the significance of when they occurred in the game that helped Auburn uh, to that victory over the Crimson Tide. Now, number three is Bo Nix. When Bo Nix found Sal Canella in the corner of the end zone and dropped a dime, I mean, it was just a perfect pass. You could only place it in one in one area where only Sal Canella can catch it. If he doesn't catch it, it's incomplete. You live to see another down. But, I mean, it was one of those throws that you it reminds you of what uh, Bo Nix can be. Because when you're a true freshman, you see glimpses and flashes of greatness, 
but you also see that inconsistency that reminds you that, yeah, he's still a true freshman. But Bo Nix, put, he put that ball on the money, only one place it could be. Sal Canella with an amazing catch uh, with that toe drag swag, as Nate Burleson calls it. Uh, Nate Burleson played for the Seahawks and the Lions, the receiver. Uh, I believe he played the Vikings as well. He's an analyst for the NFL Network, and anytime a receiver catches the ball and, and taps their two feet in, in bounds to complete the catch, he calls it that toe drag swag. And that's what exactly what Sal Canella did to complete his first touchdown catch of the season. And what a time to do it in the Iron Bowl. What a special moment for, for Canella and his family, I know. So that was number three, Bo Nick's connection to Sal Canella. Number two was Sean Shivers. We've seen this play on the jet sweep when he took it and turned up field and ran straight over Xavier McKinney uh, to the point where he knocked McKinney's helmet off. Uh, that You see just how energized and how that just kind of motivated the rest of the team for the rest of the game. They were already pumped. I mean, it's the Iron Bowl. If you're not getting up for that game, then then you're in the wrong place. But, I mean, just seeing the reaction from Shivers, he's like 5'7", very small, but he's built. He's 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 a stocky type player. Uh, so he hit up field and ran straight over McKinney. And I know we've all seen the screenshots of that play where McKinney's helmet popped off and everything. And, and that's something we normally don't see as far as an offensive player knocking a defensive player's helmet off. It's usually vice versa. It's usually where uh, an offensive player is getting their helmet knocked off. You know, you remember we're seeing when J- Jadavion Clowney was at South Carolina and he hit the Michigan running back in the backfield and his helmet popped off. Uh, you know, like, so I usually see it from a defensive hitting an offensive player knocking that offensive player's helmet onto the ground. So that, that was a very special kind of moment that gave Auburn the lead for good that um that 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 play to me when I seen it you know because short uh Sean Shiver scored but usually that play is designed for Anthony Swartz but Swartz wasn't in the game and so when I mentioned that to uh Corey Hohenwald and Dresden Williams who were on the show last week I texted them about that play after the game how you originally that's Anthony Swartz who would be in for that play. And one thing Corey po- pointed out to me was if that was Swartz in on that play, he doesn't have the strength to run through McKinney the way that Shivers did. And that was a great observation by Corey because that's so true. Like, Shivers is a lot stronger than Swartz. Swartz is a speedy guy, and Shivers can run too. But like I said, he's built, and he can kind of deliver punishment as we've seen. Um, so that was, that was, to me, was a number two moment in that game. Now, number one... Number one was the Kobe McLean's 100-yard pick-six return. And, of course, he had Smoke Monday's pick-six return earlier in the game. But McLean's was even more uh, important just because of the stage at that current time. It's first and goal. Alabama has the ball. They're up 31-30. If they score a touchdown, add an extra point, they're up eight. And even though mathematically eight points is still a one-possession game, the way that game felt and the how uh the difficulty of converting a two point conversion it just felt like a two possession game if you go up eight so to be first and goal and you're driving trying to you know get into the end zone add seven for your team instead of adding seven for your team an interception occurs and it's return it's a seven seven points for the other team that they put on their scoreboard and so that swing that momentum swing i think it changed the the landscape of the game because, like I said, it's first and goal. You're you're expecting getting a touchdown, 
and at at the minimum you're you're expecting to come out with three uh, at the very least. So, I th- but also you know Sarkeesian decided to go with a play action pass on first down. I think he wanted to catch uh, Kevin Steele off balance, catch the defense off guard because a lot of times when it's first and goal, we majority of the time we see a running play first, and then you'll see some kind of pass, maybe a play action on second down. But I believe Sarkeesian knew Auburn's defensive front, how great it was, and also what we've seen in the LSU game when the Tigers stuffed LSU on that goal line stand on fourth down. And so I think Sarkeesian wanted to be creative, give something safe, but you know, with with high chance of uh, success, uh, a high chance of being successful, which he did. He called a play action pass, and as soon as Jones wanted to release it, he was getting pressured. So it ended up going off uh, Najee Harris in the back, and then you had McLean catch the ball and return it for a hundred yards. So that to me was the defining moment that really gave Auburn that edge and swung the momentum in their favor. Like I said, anytime you score a touchdown defensively. It's like I said, it's bonus points. But when you get it at that point of the game where Alabama's looking to increase their lead, but all of a sudden they go from being up potentially by seven or by eight, I should say, they're all of a sudden they're down by six, 30, 37 to 31. So that was to me, that was the, the biggest play of that game was the Kobe McLean's 100 yard pick six return. Now for Alabama, the only only moment that I need to talk about is Jalen Waddle. Like they, that kid is amazing. He's a phenomenal athlete. Uh, just you know, I usually don't get excited by watching uh, or or for an Alabama player while they're still in Tuscaloosa. It's usually when they move on to the pros to the next next level that I can kind of get behind them. Like I I like Mark Ingram now, but I couldn't stand him when he was at Alabama. So, but Jalen Waddle, like he's electric. He's just one of those guys that you just want to see the ball in his hands and let him go to work. So in that Iron Bowl, he had four catches for 98 yards and three touchdowns. So that was all but one catch was a touchdown. And, you know, he had that comeback route, and then he darted across the middle of the field, went up the left sideline, and it looked like a few of the Auburn defenders had the angle to make the play on him, but he just turned on the Jets and ran right by them like like he was playing with little children. You know, Jalen Waddle is exceptional. I mean, he's one of the – he's he's, he's just an awesome player. Like, I don't even know how to put it into words or even describe – how fast he is like there's fast and then there's waddle fast so that's kind of how you have to compare what we um, what we've witnessed with Jalen Waddle this year and he's only a sophomore so he'll be back for another year and I'm excited to see what he does in Tuscaloosa as he continues his collegiate career now earlier that day of the Iron Bowl I was at work and I was just thinking I had like this moment and I just knew like Jalen Waddle's going to have a return for a touchdown today. I don't know if it's going to be kick return or punt return, but he's going to have a return for a touchdown today. I just had that feeling. Like, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you know something's going to happen, and then it happens. Like, I got home, and I seen that Jalen Waddle had a touchdown on a kick return, and I just knew it. But it was like I didn't share it with anybody. I didn't get a chance to share it with anybody. Uh, but it was something I just felt inside of myself. And, like I said, I just had that feeling that Jalen Waddle would have – a return for a touchdown. I was like, man, I should have mentioned that on my show last week. But like I said, I didn't kind of have the idea until the day of the Iron Bowl. And sure enough, he, he delivered on the kick return uh, after that pick six from Smoke Monday. Now, on, uh, I remember it, what it, what that moment reminded me of, though, is like I'm a Marlins fan. I've spoken, you know, being a Marlins fan, and I've watched a lot of Atlanta Braves baseball this year. 
So it was June 9th. It was a Sunday after church. I'm watching them, these two teams play against each other. And the Marlins are up 5-2 to two in the top of the ninth. As the Braves are, are at the plate, they have two men on base. Acuna is up. And so it's 5-2. to two, Marlins are leading. And I was just thinking to myself, if Acuna hits a home run right here, I'm changing the channel. I'm done. And it's like I could hear the crack of the bat before the pitch was even thrown. Like I just knew what was about to take place. And sure enough, a pitch or two later, Acuna just drills one to left field. All of a sudden, the game's tied at five. I just changed the channel like I said I would do. And I just I just was blown away. Well, not really blown away. It's just one of those I just knew it was going to happen. I knew what was about to happen before it took place. I don't know if you've ever had that moment in sports or in life in general, but that's how I felt with Jalen Waddle's kick return touchdown. I just knew he was going to have a return for a touchdown, whether it was kick return or punt return. Uh, and we've seen him, what he's done in the punt return against LSU. And uh, like I said, he's just one of those dynamic athletes that you just – Enjoy watching play, regardless of if you're for Bama or you're against Bama. And when we come back, we're going to talk about superstitions in sports with from fans, from current players, former players. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Joy FM Sports. It's more than a game. Welcome back to The Sweet Spot. I'm your host, Corey Bradley, and we're going to get into superstitions today. Uh, We know superstitions is a huge part of the sports world, whether it's fans or teams or uh, current players, you know. So I just want to – I did some research on superstitions and players who had maybe some uh, off-the-wall superstitions, maybe things you haven't heard of before, things you haven't done before. And so when I first thought about superstitions – the first person that came to mind was Nomar Garcia Parra. Garcia Parra was a star shortstop for the Red Sox uh, back in, I guess I'll say, the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, he was in that same time frame with Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez when they were kind of the the stud shortstops, young, young stud shortstops, I should say, at that time in Major League Baseball. Now, if you haven't seen Garcia Parra, before he gets to the plate, he's adjusting his batting gloves left and right. He's pulling his arm sleeve. He's touching himself on the chest, hitting himself, and I don't know if he's only praying, I don't know what he's doing, but he goes back and, forth, back and forth with his sleeve and his batting gloves, and just it's a repetitive motion that continues when he actually gets in the batting box, too. When he gets in the uh, batter's box, he toe taps. He toe taps both feet, like alternating both feet as he uh, is waiting for that first pitch, and that was the first example that came to mind when I thought about doing a segment on superstitions for the sweet spot. Garcia Parr, if you hadn't seen him, go to YouTube and go look him up. Now, baseball, one of the, the negative draws of baseball is the rain delay. We know when it's raining or the weather is uh, not good enough to continue play, so the, they delay the game until it clears up. Well, Mike Hargrove was called the human rain delay because he, just like Garcia Parra, had this long routine between each pitch. It wasn't just... Once he got to the plate for that at-bat, he did what he did. It was in between each pitch, and he was kind of the same way, adjusting his batting gloves. He wiped his uh, forehead with his hand. He touched the same part 
on his back and it was just like a constant routine um i heard i think i was watching a youtube video and they were talking about how one at bat where Hargrove went against Jim Palmer. Jim Palmer is one of the uh, best pitchers that come through Major League Baseball. So it was in that bat. It was over seven minutes. I mean, for one, obviously, it must have been a battle at the plate between Palmer and Hargrove. But I'm sure there was probably a couple minutes added in there from uh, Mike Hargrove's antics and his routine at the plate. So if you haven't seen him, go check him out as well. The next one is Steve Klein. This kind of continues the theme of baseball superstitions that I'm talking about. Steve Klein was a pitcher for the Cardinals. Uh, He pitched with other teams, but I think most people remember him mostly from his time with St. Louis. He never washed his hat. So you got to think about a pitcher and the energy that's uh, expounded in between each pitch. Steve Klein sweat a lot, too. So you would see just sweat dripping from his head and so in his helmet. I'm not saying his helmet, but his hat. And so... His hat was obviously faded, and it was just you know white rings all the way around it. It was it was really nasty as uh, to see that a player wear the same hat and never wash that hat. So that was one of Steve Klein's uh, superstitions, and to me it was just a very disgusting superstition. Wade Boggs, continuing baseball. Wade Boggs was a Hall of Fame player. He played with the Red Sox, played with the Yankees. Now Wade Boggs would wake up every day at the same time. Every day he made sure he got up at the same time. And he also took batting practice every day at 5.17, and then he would do sprints at 7.17. Like, regardless of what was going on, he took batting practice at 5.17. Sprints were at 7.17. His pregame meal was chicken. He ate chicken before every meal, and that's what Wade Boggs did, even to the point where he was going through a slump. uh, during, During one season, he was going through a major slump, so he asked the Red Sox announcer to just call him Wade Boggs when he did the introduction. Don't mention his number. Just say Wade Boggs. So, uh, Boggs was definitely one of those superstitious players throughout every single day, keeping a routine on things that had to be done before the game was played. Another player who does not play anymore but uh, was very superstitious in a way was Jason Terry. Jason Terry played in the NBA for several years. Um, A lot of people may remember him from his time with the Mavericks and with the uh, Atlanta Hawks as well. He won a championship with the Dallas Mavericks in the six-man award. Now, Jason Terry, people know him as the Jet. What he would do prior to a game is he would wear the shorts of his opponent uh, the night before. So if they played the Jazz on Friday night, Thursday night, he would wear the Jazz shorts. I don't know how he got, I don't know if it was the same shorts that the team wore, it was just a, uh, shorts with that team's logo on there, but that's what he did. So if they played Sunday against the Hawks, he would wear the Hawks shorts that Saturday night when he went to bed. And I don't know, that's, I don't know where that came to or how that came about, but that's was was one of Jason Terry's superstitions that he did as an NBA player. Now, the one player who kind of takes the cake, in my opinion, would be Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby is a star center for the Pittsburgh Penguins, as we know. I had no clue that he did all that he does or stays away from in regards to him playing uh, on the ice for the Penguins. Sidney Crosby, whenever he has... Uh, his whenever prior to each game, he he tapes his stick, his hockey stick, and he has a very precise way, precise manner that he does it. And if after he's completing 
that task of taping his stick. He puts it by his side at his locker. And if there is a player or a teammate that touches his stick, he has to retape it all over. So that was <laughs> that was one that, you know, where it got the ball rolling. But trust me, it gets more interesting as I go on. Uh, another superstition that Sidney Crosby does is when he's in a vehicle and that vehicle is approaching train tracks, he takes his feet off the floor until they cross over those train tracks. Uh, so I guess whether it's car, bus, whatever, uh, he, he makes sure when he sees train tracks, he's going to keep his feet off the floor until it goes over those train tracks. So that was another superstition that I came across. Uh, another superstition that he does is he always eats the same meal in in that city. So if they played in, in Cal- Calgary against the Flames, he would eat a certain meal. If he uh, they played against the Colorado Avalanche, he would eat a certain a certain meal in that city. So he stayed true to whatever meal he would eat in that particular city every single season. Now this is where it kind of gets ah like man, you may be doing too much. Like what what are we doing here? Now his sister's name is Taylor. So he talked to his sister Taylor one day. Later that day, when the Penguins played, Crosby suffered a, a separated shoulder. Another time, he talked to his mother, and then he broke his foot in that game the same day he talked to his mother. Another time after that, where his sister Taylor, it was her birthday weekend, she's spending the, the weekend with her brother Sidney, and Sidney broke his other foot while she was in town. And then... During the Winter Classics in 2011, they stayed away from each other as far as they didn't speak to each other, Sydney and his sister Taylor. But they happened to see each other in the hallway. And later that night when he played, he suffered a concussion that would rule him out for most of the season. And, you know, so that so he stayed, he had to start staying away from his mom and his sister because he, he believed that if he talked to them, if he seen them, he would get hurt. Now that's that's a bit much, uh, you know. When I don't know, like I don't know how to explain that. I think things sometimes just happen, but I know a lot of parents wouldn't go for that. Not being able to speak to their to their kids prior to a game or wish them luck or just even see them, you know. So, but that's what Sidney Crosby does. He doesn't talk to his mom or his sister prior to games. Now. Another superstition that Sidney Crosby, this is all Sidney Crosby, another thing that he does, it was one game where his teammate Joe Vitale played this this one song. And Sidney Crosby just loved the song, so he went up to Vitale and he was like, hey man, who sings that song? And Vitale told him, and, and Crosby was like, man, this song reminds me of my time in Italy. I took a trip to Italy, and this song reminds me of that. So that night, the Penguins won, and Sidney Crosby had like two assists. So the next game, Joe Vitale knew that he had to play that song again because how superstitious Crosby is. And it may be part of how uh, superstitious that Joe Vitale may be too. But so the next game, <laughs> Vitale played that same song prior to the game in the locker room. Crosby goes up, tells him, hey, man, I like that song, and told him all about his trip to Italy. Penguins won again. They did it the next game. They won again. Vitaly did it the next game. They won again. All the way through uh, a 16-game winning streak for the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, like I said, I don't know if Vitaly's superstitious or if it was just him being intimidated by the star center for the Penguins that if he didn't do it, he knew uh, 
you know, he would probably be in a doghouse with Sidney Crosby. But Joe Vitale spoke and said that how every time uh, Crosby would come and tell him how he liked that song, he would tell him his trip uh, about his trip to Italy. And Vitaly had to act surprised like he never heard the story before. Now, that's that's just a bit much, you know, when it comes to superstitions and the things that we see in the sports world. I mean, we all we all see in baseball when they do the rally caps and uh, turn the hats inside out and wear them in a funky kind of manner. Uh, now, superstitions, like, and I'm speaking from, I know I've been there too. I've been there uh, growing up also with feeling like you have to do certain things to get your team to win. I remember back in 07, you know, as an Auburn fan, we were playing LSU in Death Valley. It was, I think we were at one point, they only needed a field goal to win, and they had one of the best kickers at the time was Colt David. So LSU has the ball, the clock's running down. They're not calling timeout. It's like, what's going on? So Matt Flynn threw it deep, connected to Demetrius Bird. They scored a touchdown with one second left. And broke broke our hearts that night uh, as Auburn Tigers fans. And I remember going to bed that night, and I was just wondering, like, man, how did we lose that game? What was it that I did that caused us to lose? And I thought, you know, during halftime, I got up and went to the bathroom, and my team lost. And so, you know what? The rest of the year, I when Auburn played, I didn't move. I got in that one spot. I didn't move until the game was over. From the start, start of the game to the finish of the game, I stayed in that one spot. Didn't get up, didn't go to the restroom, didn't grab any food. And I, a lot of times I was really quiet. I didn't even speak. And it's just like, why do we do things like that, thinking that we can control what happens uh, in our team's games? And even in 2010, the year we won a championship, I, I, uh, I watched every game of my cousin's house. He lived in Huntsville. I would go over his house for every game. And so the day of the national championship there was this very bad snowstorm in Madison, Alabama, to the point where I couldn't even drive out of my driveway. So there was no way I was going to Huntsville to watch the game at my cousin's house. So, of course, I had to stay uh, in my road, and, and we, you know, I went to another cousin's house. We went over there in that snowstorm and had to walk up, up to his house. And, uh, you know, of course, Auburn beat Oregon 22-19 to on a last-second field goal by West Byron. But... Yeah, I was thinking while I was watching the game, like if we lose this game, it's because I'm not at my cousin Thomas' house, and so uh, it was just I don't know, like that. It really didn't. I really didn't break out of that until that 2012 year, when of course we know we went three and nine. Chizik and the staff was let go. Uh, you've heard how I was a big Chizik fan, and I remember Sunday at the church when it was announced that he was dismissed and let go from the team. I was just thinking, like I didn't want to get on that level with Auburn football ever again, and when I say that. I was obsessed. Like I, everything every day. I was reading Auburn football. I was I knew about all the recruits. I can name every co- commit in the class. And uh, I remember even to the point where I was in a store one day, and this lady came in and she she uh, had an Auburn shirt, and I was like War Eagle, and she was like War Eagle. She said my son plays for Auburn, and I said who's your son? And she said his name is Justin Delaney. I said from Linden, Alabama, and she was like Yeah, how do you know that? And I. I had to tell her, I was like, man, I'm all about Auburn. I read Auburn every day. And that's how, it, that's how uh, in a way, I'd say kind of worship Auburn football. That's kind of how it was because I was so enamored with everything that happened that took place. Like I said, it was my homepage on my phone. Like That's what I read every day. I could tell you all the commits and where they went to school and all that, where they were from. So, um, But it was that moment when Chizik was let go and, you know, how I mentioned – my disdain for Gus and when he came back it just made an easier transition to 
appreciate the game without being uh, so obsessed with the game, you know, because that's how I was. If Auburn won, you know, everything was great. If we lost, then what did I do wrong to, to cause us to lose? And I know there's some people that's, that they'll say, well, you know, I don't watch the game because when I, when, we, when I watch it, we lose. And it's like you can't live like that. It's like you got a team, something you're really interested in, but you feel that if you watch the game, then they're going to lose or uh, you got to change your shirt because that shirt doesn't work anymore. Or uh, I knew somebody when I was at Auburn, you know, he had certain jeans he wear. If we lost, he switched it up to another pair of jeans. It's like, why do we why do we have to do all these things and have to take part in all of these uh, rituals in a way that we believe will help control uh, the outcome of the game? I mean, even with the Iron Bowl just passing by, that used to be the most stressful week to me because I'm feeling like I have to do all these things right in order for Auburn to beat Alabama uh, in the Iron Bowl that week. And it was a relief once that game was actually over uh, because like I said you're feeling like you have to be on your P's and Q's you got to be on top of everything you got to be super nice just because if you don't then man Tigers may lose to Alabama and I can't put up with an, a full year of, of bragging rights from hearing them talk about how they beat us so it was a relief after that game just because it was over and you know like I said not having to go through that whole routine anymore now I don't, I've grown from that. I believe, you know, God has delivered me from the obsession with superstitions and feeling like I have to do certain things for my team to win. Uh, I remember uh, when I was leading a sixth grade group at Wiregrass Church a couple years ago, at the end of class, we would always go around and say what we're praying for. And I had one student say he was praying that Georgia would win a national championship that year. And I was like, man, you can't pray. You can't pray for things like that, man. It's like, that's not how it works, you know, because I I don't want him to grow up the way I did. I was like, man, if I told the class, if praying like that, you know, was was what it was about, then Auburn would win a national championship every year. You know, my San Antonio Spurs would always be uh, NBA champions. And so I didn't want the kids to growing up thinking like that and being having that kind of mindset when it comes to God and and the things of prayer. So. I remember my aunt Melissa was telling me a few years ago that, you know, God has given us uh, dominion over, you know, the, the, the fowl in the air, the fish in the sea, and uh, of all the cattle, but he he never gave us dominion over people. So I think that's where we, we miss it. We don't have dominion over people. So when we get, when we take part of these superstitions and rituals, it it's, that's kind of what we think we're doing. We think we're controlling what happens on the field or on the court. Uh, when I think really what happens, happens. You know, the better team wins or the team that makes the, the fewest mistakes wins. And you, it could be a Bama fan out there listening like, man, look what all the championships we won. I know what I did was a huge part of that and the superstitions and all that. Nick Saban is the best coach in college football history. That's why they won all those championships and they had some of the best talent during those championship years as well. Even the years they didn't win a the championship, they've always had some of the best talent up there in Tuscaloosa. So, Try to stay away from superstitions. Don't get involved in them. Do away with it so uh, so you can actually enjoy the game and be at peace because that's how I feel now when I watch a game. I'm at peace when I'm watching my team. Uh, now, of course, I want them to win, and I do get nervous in, in, uh, in the middle of the game, in the games as, as, as a, any fan would be, but there's such a relief that I can actually just watch it and don't feel like I'm controlling the game. Now, when we return, we're going to close the show with today's Triple C. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back here on The Sweet Spot. I need a stop, need a stop. 
Welcome back to the sweet spot. It's time for our triple C Corey's closing comments. And what I want to share with you today is be aware, uh, not just your physical surroundings. When we are in this season, this holiday season, as I mentioned before, the rush and everybody's trying to get somewhere. There's been so many close calls where I've seen people nearly back into each other or almost hit somebody because they're just rushing through. So be aware of your situation, the people that are around you. Take your time. Stay away from any distractions. But I also want to tell you to be aware from a spiritual standpoint, because in this season that we're in, the enemy knows that you're in a rush and you're stressing or you're trying to get things done in a shorter amount of time. And he knows how to get you off track. He knows what pushes your buttons. He knows how to distract you. So be prepared in this season because the enemy wants to get you off the path that God has for you. Because sometimes we have to stand still where we are and let God bring those blessings to us. But the enemy knows he can take you out of where you're supposed to be. It's a victory for him. So be aware in this season. And until next time, always remember your love in the sweet spot. Stay in the sweet spot for the Joy FM Sports Facebook page. This has been a presentation of the Joy FM Sports. It's more than a game.